As we've already talked about a little bit this morning is uh, that we are attempting to get through Colossians, uh, and we're going nice and slow, which I'm happy with because uh, this is one of my, I don't know if you know, there's many different styles of preaching, and sometimes we'll do topical, and sometimes we'll do what's called expository, which is just kind of verse by verse walking through the Bible. Um, Always preferred expository because that's what I like to do uh, at home is just sit with the Word of God and just study it and hold apart and look at all the different things and learn so much about the culture and all of that. It's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, when we first were talking about, uh, we always, before we do a book of the Bible, we always spend at least one week talking about the background. We talk about the history. We talk about the purpose. We talk about what was going on, who the author is, all of these things, because it's so important that we know exactly what's happening with a book before we dive into it. And so um, just reminding you, recapping a little bit of as we read Colossians, we're reading a letter written by Paul to a newer church. Um, It is uh, not a very old church. Paul doesn't know the church well. He's never been to the church since its inception. He's met some of the uh, a few of the key leaders in the church, but he doesn't know the church as a whole. He doesn't know the church culture. He doesn't know the, the much about it other than the reports he's gotten. And so he's writing this letter. He's also writing a letter to a group of people who are, like many of the churches in the area, kind of inundated with uh, false teaching. Um, you have not just the pagan practices of the people, because the church is mostly non-Jewish. Um, so you have all of their pagan practices. They're trying to figure out, okay, how do we mix like what we used to do now with Jesus? And you also have now some Jewish, uh, be- I don't know if you'd call them believers. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. But they're trying to bring the practices of Judaism into the church and say, okay, it's great that you love Jesus, but there's a lot of laws you need to follow. There's a lot of rituals you need to follow in order to be a true Christian. Um, And so here's Paul writing this letter to say, Jesus is what's important. Following him is of utmost importance. Everything else needs to fall away except for following Jesus. All the pagan practices, the the rituals, all of that stuff, it all takes second place. There's nothing wrong with, you know, to celebrate the festival of booths or to celebrate Passover or to celebrate the Sabbath, but all of those things come secondary to following Jesus. He is the focus of our life. He should be, and uh, because he is our focus, then we must uh, look to him first and foremost. So uh, I don't know about you, but I I know... um, Chapter 3, for me, holds so much. I think Paul is really building in the book of Colossians up to chapter 3, and that is why I believe um, when you look at verse 1, it starts with, since you have, and as we talked about last week, uh, the New Living Translation that I I use to teach, uh, I think, uh, doesn't give the best interpretation of this verse because it really gives the uh, this gives the impression of like uh, an assumption that the, his readers are uh, have been raised to new life in Christ and I think the more proper translation is if then as the ESV which is my study Bible uh, if then you have been raised with Christ there's a conditional statement I think Paul is building up to chapter three and then he starts with this okay so if you are a believer is what Paul is saying. If then you have been raised with Christ, he begins to move on to what it looks like. Okay, what does it look like to live out this new life? And I, I firmly believe the whole reason I think God is taking us through Colossians is because 
we have an entire culture of Christianity that says, okay, Jesus, and I, we were actually just talking about this at Community Days. A couple of us were talking about how uh, some of our churches used to do some things that maybe we didn't fully agree with because it was more emotional-based. Um, we'd like scare people and then get them to make a confession of Jesus, and then we never saw them again. But we still like patted ourselves on the back and said, hey, we got so many confessions of faith because of this thing or that thing, uh, because we got you know, people worked up emotionally and got them to make a decision. Um, and it was all about converts. And we don't explain well what this new life should look like, what the, the parts of this new life are, what a vibrant new life in Christ looks like. It's like we, we focus on the converts, we focus on make a, make a decision for Jesus, okay, now attend church. That's the Christian life. And there's so much more to it. The life that God has called us to is this beautiful thing that uh, we cannot, you can't teach it. It's one of those things that you must just experience. And as you journey with Jesus, as he interacts with you, as you engage with him, you begin this walk and, it, and it's, it's this passionate walk where you, you, he's tearing away the things of your old life and he's replacing it with new. And there's these times where you, you come to a wall with Jesus and he's like, you know, you got to let this stuff go. And we can't move past this. And then you do and, and it's hard, but then it's beautiful and it's this amazing life that many believers are robbed of because they think the totality of the Christian life is just to attend church, sing some songs, go home, and try not to make it look too bad. Especially when you're at church, you've got to make it look really good. You know, if somebody asks how you're doing, you can't tell them that your life is falling apart and you're miserable and you hate life. You just have to say, good, brother. Everything's wonderful. Uh, and that's the good church Christian. And Paul is painting a picture here of what it looks like to live the new life, and it's messy, and it can get ugly sometimes, and it requires a lot of work, but it's this beautiful journey with Jesus, and it's what we need in our lives. So uh, what I want to do first, since it shouldn't take long because we didn't get very far last week, is to catch us up a little bit uh, in Colossians 3, and then we're going to continue on. Last week, we kind of started verse 5. That's why I said we kind of only got through like four and a half verses last week because we, we touched on verse 5, but we really didn't get through it. So um, I want to catch us up uh, in chapter 3, and then we'll continue on with verse 5. So uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 says, since, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, Set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. If then, whoop, we're repeating that one, think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. So that's where we got last week. And I think uh, one of, as I was preparing um, and studying through this verse, one of the things that really jumped out to me uh, was the, the word the New Living Translation uses, this, this lurking word. We talked about this last week about how there are sinful earthly things that lurk inside of us. And what Paul is saying here is to put to death the sinful earthly things. And uh, if you've lived as a Christian long enough, then you've heard many people make many declarations of how they're done 
done with these sins or they're done with that and they're done with this behavior. And then what happens? We get in the same pattern that Israel was in in the book of Judges. We, make these, we, we get into this bad spot. We realize we desperately need Jesus. We call out to him and make these great confessions of like, I'll never do it again and everything will be wonderful. And then we have a period of, of prosperity uh, and things are going well. And what do we do? We turn right back to our old idols, to the things that uh, give us earthly satisfaction. And then we find ourselves in a predicament again, and we get to a bad spot, and things are ugly, and we call out to Jesus, and we continue this cycle. And I, I believe part of the reason of that is we're not following Paul's advice. We're not putting to death the sinful things. We're putting off for a season these things. We don't, we don't kill them. We just set them on the back burner. We put them in the closet for a while. We maybe uh, starve them a little bit for a time by staying away from some of the things, but we don't do what Paul says by putting to death the things which lurk. And I just want to uh, reiterate what that, uh, the lurking word says. It says, remaining, this is the definition of lurking, remaining hidden so as to wait in ambush. And again, another definition, of an unpleasant quality present in a latent or barely discernible state, although still presenting a threat. And so there are these things, Paul says, these sinful, earthly things that lurk in us, that sit and wait in ambush. And many times, in a barely discernible state, although still presenting a threat. Some of us will make it look really good. We uh, put a smile on our face, we dress the part, we say the right things in church and around church community people, but really we have these things lurking within us. And when they begin to ambush us or when they begin to present a threat, uh, we feel like, oh, we have failed as a Christian and so we hide that stuff and we try to not let our community know about the struggles that we're having and, and that, yeah, I did let earthly things lurk and now I'm, you know, I'm being ambushed by the sins, the sinful earthly things within me and we try to hide that instead of just realizing every single person here is in the same boat. We all fall to these sinful earthly things lurking within us from time to time. Those things will always be present because we're still in this broken world. And so each of us deals with that, whether it's bitterness, whether it's lust, whether it's anger, we all have those things. And so I, let me just be clear about that this morning. There is nobody in this room watching or on the face of this planet that doesn't have sinful earthly things lurking within them myself included, nobody's exempt from that. And each week, we will reap the harvest and be ambushed by those things. And so it's this constant effort of putting to death the sinful earthly things within us. And, and what we talked about last week and what I, what I think is the answer to this problem is not to deal with just the behaviors. If all you ever do is behavior management, then that's all you're ever going to do. You're going to be constantly trying to manage behaviors and wondering why they keep coming up, why they keep presenting themselves in the same fashion, in the same way. Man, I haven't done that in 10 years, and all of a sudden, wham, you're hit with it again. And you wonder, like, how did I fall back into this? Because you didn't put it to death. You just put it to rest, and it woke back up because it was lurking, waiting in ambush. And we wonder how these things happen. And so I think what... 
the answer, what the encouragement is here, is to cut off the lines of supply we talked about last week. Cutting off the lines of supply to these things is finding out where, is, where are these sinful earthly things coming from? What is feeding them? And you begin to cut that off because, I don't know, uh, you're probably aware of this, if you don't eat for a while, you will die. Uh, most of us haven't ever gotten even close to that um, time frame. If you've ever fasted, uh, you might have felt like you're going to die, but uh, you've, you've had that feeling, but cutting off the line of supply, no longer allowing that sinful earthly thing to be fed or watered by the things that you watch, the things that you hear, the things that you engage in in your life, and that will kill them. That's how we put them to death because I don't know about you, but when I hear language like that, sometimes we, you know, we talk about Christian ease, uh, this Christian ease language. It's like, okay, put to death. And we say that, oh, you need to put that to death. What does that even mean? You know, and, and as I was studying this, I, I sat there and wrestled with that. Okay, we say these things, put it to death. And I think maybe we translate it in our brain as just stop doing it. Has that worked for anybody else? Because it doesn't work for me. I can say I'm going to stop doing it all I want, but unless I intentionally go after something and say, you know what, I'm cutting off the lines of supply for this, uh, whether if it's, if it's lust and, 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 I don't know, you're watching TV shows that have things in there that are supplying that sin, then stop watching it. You need to cut off the lines of supply. If anger is your problem, then uh, when, as you're sitting and stewing over things uh, and, and you're, you know, working yourself up and, and um, maybe you're somewhat like me, and anybody else ever had like 15 arguments with somebody before you actually have the conversation, or is that just me? Uh, maybe stop doing that. Maybe just pray instead and cut off the lines of supply. Uh, instead of having the argument 15 times in your head, pray for them 15 times before you have the conversation, and see how that changes your problem of anger. And when things are presented to you, and you feel that frustration, and you, you feel your blood pressure go up, uh, instead of, you know, going through all the normal pathways in your head, you instead choose to pray for them and think of like, what, what can I pray for for that person? I don't know what those are. Uh, that's between you and the Lord, figuring out what those things are, figuring out what the lines of supply are, tracing them back, and beginning to put those things to death. That's where those things die, is when we no longer allow them to be fed, to be watered, to have any nourishment whatsoever, and watch those things shrivel and die in our lives. And now, the enemy has a lot more trouble trying to ambush us because we're actively, intentionally going after the things that cause us to fall repeatedly and to tear those roots out so that they can no longer be fed. And so last week, uh, that's kind of where we finished, uh, evaluating all those things, cutting off the lines of supply. But what we didn't do is get into the specific sins uh, that Paul is talking about here. There's, there's this list here in verse 5, uh, and a lot of these have to do with uh, sexual type sins, which, um, that, you know, we probably don't have to cover that in our culture today, right? You know, that's not an issue at all, I don't, whatsoever, 2,000 years later. Yes, of course it is. Uh, some of you would probably argue it's gotten worse. I don't know that's ever gotten worse. I just, uh, uh, there's more out there that we can access on a daily basis, but I don't think our hearts have uh, become more uh, rotten since 2,000 years ago. I think it's just out there in the media and everything. But what he covers in verse 5 is one of the first things he says, have nothing to do with sexual immorality. Um, what does that mean? Well, it's a pretty general and all-encompassing title. Um, I like that Paul starts with this one because it's like, you know, if I don't, if, if Paul doesn't cover your, your individual pet sin after this, he's already covered it in his generalization. Sexual morality, anything that has to do with sexual activity outside of marriage. Okay? 
He covers it all. Uh, he kind of gives this broad sweeping thing uh, because if you don't know, the Word of God also says uh, if because uh, I don't know if you've ever had this conversation with the Lord, well, like, well, it's not specifically in the Bible, so is it actually a sin? Uh, even though we know that the Lord is telling us that's sinful. Um, and so the Scriptures even cover that by saying, if, if we feel like to do it is sin, then for us it is sin. And so if, the, if God has his finger on something in your life and saying, this needs to die, whatever it is, whether you can find it in Scripture or not, if you really can feel the Holy Spirit's conviction on that, then don't try to parse it out and try to find where the Bible might say it's okay or that the fact that, you know, or try to rest on the fact that the Bible doesn't speak to your individual sin. Here's Paul speaking to it, if it has to do with any kind of sexual category. All activity of any sort outside of marriage is sexual morality, and Paul is saying, have nothing to do with it. Stay away from it. Wherever the lines of supply are that have to do with this, cut them off. He says, put it to death. The next thing he covers is impurity. And uh, we need to think of this in context of, of how especially uh, the original audience would have read this. Remember, this is written uh, shortly, I don't know, um, now I'm, I'm blanking on the numbers, somewhere around 50, uh, 50 AD, um, this is written. But the, this culture would have been very familiar with the uh, Jewish culture of pure and impure. Um, and for that culture, if you've ever read your Old Testament and you've read the you know, litany of laws and how you can become impure, uh, one of the main parts of that is you have to come in contact with something to become impure. To be around impurity does not make one impure. And so um, we know that the Bible says to be in the world but not of the world. That means that we need to be in the world. It means that we need to go to places where there is darkness. We need to not pat ourselves on the back because, well, I've never been to that place. I've never stepped foot in that place because that's just a dark place. Well, maybe you need to step some feet in there because that's where Jesus is needed, into these dark places, that we would be near sin, that we would be in dark places with the light of Christ, but not of the darkness, that we would not partake in it, we would not come into contact with the sin of that place, and if you can't keep yourself from that, then that's not where God's calling you to. That's not your mission field. It's somebody else's. If you can't enter a bar and, and, and minister there because you end up getting drunk and you end up making a fool out of yourself, then that's not the mission field God's calling you to. That's somebody else's. Don't think, you know, don't put yourself in a place where you're going to end up being of the world. Go places where God is calling you to that you can be in but not of. And what Paul is saying is have nothing to do with impurity. That means do not come in contact with the sinful behaviors of the world. Again, um, just being around a dead body or just being around something of the Jewish culture did not make them, it was when they touched it that they became impure. And it was only through a cleansing process and by separating themselves from that thing, they became pure again. Um, that's how they became pure. Uh, and so what Paul is saying here by including impurity in this is saying, is he's saying, have nothing to do with, do not come into contact with the sinful behaviors and practices of this world. Don't, don't do it. As soon as you come into contact, that's when you have become impure. Have nothing to do with that. Lust, while this could refer to any passion, 
which masters or controls us. Uh, this isn't uh, just a sexual type sin. We can lust after things that aren't uh, necessarily in the realm of sexual sin, but uh, because Paul's including it in this list of sexual sins, you can be pretty clear that's what Paul is saying is um, this has to do with a lust of the flesh uh, uh, idea. And so what he's talking about is here, um, have nothing to do with uncontrolled sexual urges, to allow things. And to get there, um, I'm pretty sure you've, many of us have lived long enough that it takes a while to uh, allow what we see, and then we begin to think about it, and we begin to fantasize about it, and we begin to play scenarios in our head, and that's when lust begins to happen. And so, um, again, you're, you're not going to, in our culture, get away from, um, at times, seeing things that could create a problem here. But you kill the lines of supply by saying, okay, I saw something, and I'm not going to continue to think about it. I'm not going to continue to dwell on it. I'm not going to continue to fantasize about it. I'm going to cut it off and put it to death. And so um, we can be in the world again, but not of the world. And then he moves on to evil desires. Evil desires are the steps after lust. Lust is the thinking. It's the fantasizing about it. And it's important to note here, I just want to pause for just a moment, because uh, sometimes and, and probably often in your Christian walk, the enemy will convince you and, and shame you because of temptation. And the Bible is pretty clear, temptation itself is not sin. To be tempted is not to sin. It is what happens after temptation that we are, we are in sin. It says that Jesus was in the wilderness, and the devil what? tempted him. I tell you, after 40 days, he was 100% man, 100% God. After 40 days, he was tempted to eat something. He was tempted to drink some water. It's what he did with the temptation that made Jesus without sin. Though there was a physical desire for something, he chose God over his physical desires. And so uh, when the enemy tries to convince you that like, oh, because you're tempted, you're just a shameful, horrible person, you can remind him that it's what happens after temptation. To be tempted uh, is not sin. However, I want to just include, uh, if you're putting yourself in a place where you're constantly tempted over and over and over, and you're not like using common sense to say, hey, maybe I should not put myself in that situation because I'm going to end up giving in the temptation eventually, um, use some common sense uh, as well. But to be tempted is not to sin. We can experience temptation without falling into sin. And so evil desires, it's when we begin to dwell on the temptation, it becomes lust, and we say, okay, that is desirable, and we begin to think about it, and we begin to mull over scenarios, and that is what matures into evil desires. No longer is it now a fantasy, it becomes a desire. We want it. We begin to desire this thing, not just fantasize about it, but desire it in our heart, in our mind, or whatever it is. That's what he's talking about with evil desires. And then he moves on to greed. And again, I think this is another place where the New Living Translation kind of misses the mark. Uh, in the ESV or in some other translations, this is, uh, I would say, more properly translated, not as greed, but as covetousness. And that's a nice, good Christianese word. Uh, but we, we find the word covet where? Do we find it most prevalent? It's the first place that comes to your mind. Ten Commandments, yeah. Uh, you, you see that coming up. Uh, it says to not covet. And most of us were taught at an early age, probably Sunday school, unless you were like me and you just missed that whole part of your life because you got saved after that. Uh, but you were taught coveting is to desire something that's not yours. 
Uh, and in the areas of sexual sin, that comes across pretty clearly, to not covet things, whether uh, it's your neighbor's spouse uh, or something that you shouldn't have or to have a, a relationship that you don't have or to have a dynamic in your relationship that's not there, to covet uh, both greed or covetousness, uh, it's an unhealthy desire for things you don't have. Now, we just live in a culture where you turn on the TV, every commercial, what is it? It's basically designed to make you covet, to make you want what you don't have. I mean, that's the entire goal of marketing is I have a product and you really, really need this thing. And let me explain why. I mean, that's marketing 101. That's what they're doing is they're showing you how, why you need this thing. And that just goes into so many places of our culture. They use sex to sell things. They use uh, desire. They use lust to sell things. They use greed to sell things. Uh, and it's very easy to fall into that because our culture is surrounded by, inundated by this uh, greed, coveting culture. And we have to fight against that. Whether it's a nice car or someone who isn't our spouse, the, uh, what we're doing when we're desiring these things, uh, it's worshiping something other than God. And what it is, especially in the, in the area of coveting or greed, is it's worshiping our desires over God. That's what coveting really is. It's saying, I want that thing more than I want Jesus. Because I know if I just leaned into my relationship with Jesus, if I engaged in my walk with Jesus, that He'll take care of me. And the things that he'll bring into my life are the things uh, that I need. And the Bible even tells me that God uh, cares for even the desires of my heart. And so he'll even give me things that I don't even necessarily need, but that I just want, that I desire. He'll, he'll give me the, the blessings of walking with him if I follow after him. What greed and covetousness is saying, I don't really trust that God is going to give me what I want. So I'm going to go outside of that and I'm going to work toward my own ends to get that thing. Because I just don't trust God, I don't trust His timing, I don't trust His capability, whatever it is that we don't trust, it's a lack of trust in God. And we begin to worship our desires over God. Which Paul points out in this verse, that's idolatry. To worship anything other than God is idolatry. And what happened, the position we were in before we knew Jesus was we were on our throne, the throne of our hearts. We worshiped ourselves. We worshiped our desires. We worshiped our wants. And then we come to know Jesus. And he says, okay, here's the Holy Spirit. He belongs on the throne of your heart. This is, this is his natural place now. And what greed or covetousness does is it says, okay, why don't you take a seat over here and I'm going to put my desires back on the throne of my heart. And this is what's going to drive me. This is what's going to push me. This is what's going to make, help me make decisions. This is what's going to determine uh, how I spend my money, how I spend my time, it are my desires, my kingdom. And that is idolatry. To put anything in that place is idolatry. And Paul's pretty clear on that. To want something that others have and belongs to them is to covet it. When we do that, we worship the created thing rather than the creator. And it, I don't know about you, but I read the Old Testament, and I read how like somebody will uh, take a piece of wood, and half of it they use to, you know, to heat their home, and the other half they carve into this little idol, and then they worship it. Like The whole family worships this thing that they know that they created themselves, uh, and they worship it anyhow. And we think it's silly and ridiculous, but then we worship ourselves. And any of you think you're God? No? Okay. So we're all caught up sometimes in worshiping things that are absolutely ridiculous to worship. I think if any of us were honest, uh, 
we are not a very good object to worship because we are messed up, we're flawed, we're broken, uh, but yet we find ourselves in a constant pattern of worshiping ourselves, worshiping our desires, worshiping our wants, worshiping our kingdom, thinking, I know better, and if God would just get on board with what I've got going on, this world would be a better place because I really know know, what, what to do and I really have a good plan. And man, if God just followed it, I'd be happy, I'd be joyful. And then every now and then, what happens? God gives us what we desire or we end up getting what we desire. And it just, ugh, it just doesn't do it. We wonder why we're continually dissatisfied. Even though we seem to have everything we ever wanted, we're still dissatisfied because we were on the throne and we worshiped ourselves and then we got what we wanted. We realized, man, worship on ourselves is, is pointless. It's purposeless. It's joyless. And so we come back to a place where we realize that was idolatry and we're to have nothing to do with that, Paul says. And when we are engaged in sexual activity outside of marriage, anything that is covered by sexual immorality, that umbrella, what happens is we put ourselves on the throne, we worship our desires for sexual gratification, and never has that worked out positively for somebody. And whether that's infidelity in our marriages, whether that's secret sins that we carry and nobody knows about, but we do it in darkness, whether it's pornography or whatever it is, it never produces joy. It only produces shame and guilt and all these other things that are not what we want for our lives. And so Paul is saying, have nothing to do with this stuff. Cut off the lines of supply. Whether it's a nice house, car, way of life, or someone who isn't our spouse, when we put our desires at the center of our heart rather than God, it's idolatry and we're to have nothing to do with it. What this verse leaves us with, I think, is a question. Where do you get your sense of fulfillment from? Not in like this great cosmic way, but every day. Where does your sense of fulfillment come from? If you were to get what you wanted, what would that look like? Uh, That's another way maybe to ask that question. If it's from the things of this world, if you say, well, man, if I just had a nicer house, oh, if I could just, man, my car's on its last leg. It seems like it's always on its last leg. If I just had a nice car, life would be better. If I just had uh, a bigger salary, oh, man, then life would be good. And not even just money or monetary things, but where do we get our sense of fulfillment from? Is it from our kids, from our family, from our spouse, from our friends, from our coworkers? Is like the best day that we can possibly have when we're successful at work or when, we're, we, when we feel like a successful parent? Is that where our sense of fulfillment comes from? I saw someone post uh, the other week uh, on Facebook and I was just like, man, that's a really good quote. And it said, you can't expect God to be the source of your peace if the world is the source of your satisfaction. And so often, we as Christians, we say, Jesus is, is the center of my life. He's on the throne of my heart. And yet, most, the majority of our fulfillment comes from the things of this world, not the things of God. In our Sunday school class this morning, we were talking about how Uh, when we live our lives the way God desires us to, we impact eternity in ways that, man, you can't put a price tag on that. If you've ever had like a conversation with somebody and you've been a part of their journey toward Jesus and you've seen that light come on for somebody or you've helped somebody through a difficult time and, and not by being Jesus but by getting them to Jesus and you see them walk with Jesus because of your engagement with them because God decided he could use you and you were willing to 
And there's nothing like that feeling of being a part of that person's journey toward Jesus. And yet, we constantly seek fulfillment through the things of this world. We go to work every day or we're engaged in life every day and we don't stop to think in the morning, of, okay, God, how can I make today about you? How can I be about your kingdom even as I go to my nine-to-five job or I, I engage in this, this workplace that seems like you, you have no place here? How can I engage in a way that is kingdom-oriented? And it's a perspective. It's entirely a perspective. I, I firmly believe you can engage in just about any workplace, any job, anywhere, and make it kingdom work if our perspective is that of we are sent by God to be light to a dark world. Then we can be engaged in kingdom work. Even if you're scrubbing a floor or you know, you know, feeding a kid you know, if you're a, a mom, that can be done as kingdom-oriented work, knowing that I give everything to Jesus and I do everything for Him because that's where my sense of fulfillment comes from. When you lay in bed at night, and you process your day, what's your scorecard? What does it look like for yourself? Do you rate yourself based on how your friends see you, how your coworker sees you, how your boss sees you, how your spouse sees you? Or do you rate your day based on how you worshiped God with what you did? For me, uh, a while ago, I just kind of had to make a decision that, you know what, I'm not going to live for the approval of others. I'm not going to live for the approval of uh, my bosses or um, now my spouse. Uh, even though I love my wife, she's not where I get my sense of fulfillment from. It's Jesus. And we should wrestle with that because that's what Paul is saying here, that we shouldn't worship the things of this world. We shouldn't let them be the source of our fulfillment, the source of our, our gain, that their kingdom, the world's kingdom, should not be ours, and we shouldn't live for the furthering of that kingdom. If we do, that's idolatry. And we wonder why we're struggling, why we don't seem to have peace. I think that quote what we just said, if you're looking for the world to fulfill you, then don't be surprised when God doesn't give you the peace that you need because he's not your source of fulfillment, so how can he be your source of peace? That's when we begin to look to him that he can be that source of peace. Especially when we're suffering the consequences of our, of our mistakes with our worldly things. And we wonder why we just don't feel peace in our heart. But the beautiful thing about Jesus, what I love about him, is when we turn to him, he's always right there. He's never like, well, I, I, you know, I distanced myself from you because you're a dirty, rotten sinner. He's always right there. As soon as we turn to him, he welcomes us and says, yes, I'm here. And it's not a lengthy process to get back to Jesus. It's simply repenting, turning, and there he is. And we begin to journey back toward him. So shockingly, let's move on to the next verse. I know. (laughs) We are going to get to another verse today. Verse 6. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. I don't know. You watch the news lately? Seems like the anger of God is here. Seems like the anger of God is coming. The world is broken. I don't think it takes a very uh, wise person to, to realize that, to realize that we live in a broken world. But the anger or wrath of God is the only possible outcome to sin. Do we realize that? Do we acknowledge that? For us, when we engage sin, we have a choice because we, we can choose to live from the flesh or from the Spirit of God. He doesn't have a choice. His only possible outcome to, these, uh, to sin is anger or wrath. He has, he's a just God. 
he must act on sin. And, he, and God doesn't have the option of just sweeping it under the rug because he is a just God. He is holy, righteous, and pure. The reality is it shouldn't just be God's anger either in, or, in, in response to sin. We should find sin just as appalling as God does. The, the Bible says to abhor evil. If you, uh, if you study that word abhor, it means to like become physically ill over. When we engage sin, it should make us sick to see the sin, not just of other people, not just the sins that we like really hate, but our sin too should bother us. In his letter to the Romans, Paul puts it this way. Don't just pretend to love others, really love them, hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good. Hate what is wrong. That should be our natural operating because that's what God does. Because he is holy, because he is the just God he is, he can only hate sin. He can only hate what is wrong. He can't love it. He can't accept it. He can't tolerate it. That's just not who he is. And we should be in that place. And, and not to uh, one of the old sayings um, that I never did really care for was, uh, hate the sin, love the sinner. Great saying, but what we most of the time when I've heard that said, what it means is, dislike the sinner, hate the sin, uh, or condemn the sinner and the sin. Because we're not really talking about loving the person, engaging the person, leading them toward Jesus. Yeah, all sin we should hate, not just the ones that we you know, are really passionate about, whether um, culturally or whatever it is. All sin should bother us whenever we encounter it, whether it's in somebody else or, or in us. We sh- it should bother us But just like this verse says, don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Love them more than your idea of what they should do or or your, your determination of what they should do or what their life should look like. Hold tightly to what is good. Paul explains how these sins have no place in the new life that we have in Christ in verse 7. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world. Um, if you don't know, one of the things about Paul is Paul loves like the juxtaposition of like the new life, the you have, but you don't quite have. Um, it's kind of like one of Paul's motifs as he writes is he's always talking about what we currently have, but what we don't fully have yet. Um, that's a lot of what verse or chapter three is because he says, you know, you, uh, your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when, when Christ is revealed, we, we, you know, we'll experience and we'll, we receive the glory uh, of God. He's saying, you are righteous, you are holy, but you haven't fully realized it yet. And he's trying to show us you have this new life and you've left the old life behind. And he's trying to point out all of these sins that he's talking about. He's saying, you used to do these things when your life was still part of this world. But he's making it very clear. We have departed from the world. Though the world is still all around us, we have departed from it. We live a new life. There is a huge distinction between our old life and our new life. If your life hasn't changed since coming to know Jesus, if the only thing that's changed is what you do on Sunday mornings, that's a problem. Just because your location on a Sunday morning changed to church rather than the couch or you know, still sleeping, that, that's not true regeneration. That should worry us if our new life looks really similar to the old life and there's really not a whole lot of change to it because 
there is such a drastic change from the old life to the new life. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that we change jobs or we change families or we change uh, social class or anything like that. What changes entirely is our perspective. Our desires change. Paul covers that in Romans 7 and 8. He talks about how now his desire is to serve God, and there's this constant tension between his worldly self and his, and his uh, spirit. And uh, I think, you know, I see often, I talk to people that are like, man, I'm really struggling with this because, like, I feel like I'm just, like, I'm messing it up all the time. And, and, as, and as they communicate, what they're communicating is, like, I'm starting to realize, like, sin really bothers me. And it's like, that's a good thing. <laughs> that's awesome. Don't let the enemy shame you because of that. As a matter of fact, that should encourage you that now sin in your life bothers you so much. And as you encounter your sin, you're bothered by it and you're frustrated by it and it actually makes you angry and it makes you, because that's the heart of God coming through in you. That sin is beginning to bother you to the point that it's motivating you to change. That's a good sign of regeneration. Not, well, I'm not really fitting in with this group of people, so I have to really clean my life up so I fit in with them better and I, everything looks better. That's a whole different ballgame. But that, unfortunately, is what church can become. Well, I, I just want to fit in with these people, so I have to at least stop letting these sins be public. And that's not what God's calling us to. He's calling us to his deep inward change. And if you haven't experienced that, that is a red flag for you to say, well, maybe just because I said that prayer, doesn't necessarily mean it took hold in my life. doesn't mean I have a relationship with Jesus. Paul then moves from sexual sins to sins regarding anger. Um, these are kind of the two lists of sins that Paul covers in, in chapter 3. Um, as he moves on to verse 8, Paul is saying, But now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language, Paul is saying. Um, these are different sins, but still sin. And just as we discussed in uh, verse 5 with the sexual sins, these sins are also fueled by things that lurk inside of us. They're things which reside in us. The supply lines of all the sins in this verse, uh, in in verse 8 here, are unforgiveness. So if you're looking for like a pathway, if if any of these things are... are, uh, sins that you regularly struggle with or you're like, oh yeah, oh, that one hits home. Um, let me just help you in the, you know, in the guiding process. If you're trying to look for the lines of supply, try to pull up the rug of unforgiveness and you're probably going to find a lot of stuff under there because that's where these sins are fed from. Well, our inability or our unwillingness to forgive others creates anger, rage, malicious behavior, slang, slander, and dirty language. That's where this stuff comes from is a heart of unforgiveness. If we forgive quickly and freely those who sin against us, we cut off the lines of supply to these sins. It's really hard to be a, a person of rage when we constantly forgive offenses against us. And when, no matter what anybody does, they're going to be met with forgiveness, true, authentic forgiveness. It'd be pretty hard to develop a spirit of rage in that if we're honestly and authentically forgiving. Because, as we'll discuss, this is all a progression. These sins are a progression, as Paul covers them, of what happens when we choose not to forgive. And when we choose not to forgive, these sins begin to dig roots down in and manifest in the sins that are listed here. So, just look at the progression as we go through this. Anger, he covers first. Um, He's saying, uh, now is the time to get rid of anger. Someone's behavior offends us, and what happens? We get angry. 
That's a natural response. It's not, uh, depending on how you look at anger, it can be a sin, but it's not always a sin. Jesus experienced anger when he walked into the temple and he saw them uh, manipulating the house of God to be something it was never meant to be as they're buying and selling things. And, and uh, if you know the story behind that, Jesus, one of the big reasons Jesus is angry is um, it actually wasn't, it's not out of their custom to buy or sell sacrifices. But what they were doing is you would buy something, a sacrifice. You would buy a lamb, um, you'd spend the money, and then the next person would come forward and they'd buy the same lamb. Um, they were cheating the people of God. They weren't actually sacrificing the things that they were selling. They were just reselling them over and over and over again, and that really made Jesus angry. Um, and he flips tables and he does things um, like that. But when someone's behavior offends us, we get angry. And then we can choose to acknowledge acknowledge the hurt and forgive here or we can let it go and it can progress further and i would say a lot of times what we can fall into is this idea of like well i'm just not going to respond to that and we treat that as if it's forgiveness and it's not forgiveness is an intentional effort and what it, what it re- requires of us is to first acknowledge the hurt hey that bothered me what you said or what you did or what you didn't do. And I'm going to release it. There's an acknowledging part and there's a releasing part to forgiveness. One of the things that um, Jackie, and I, Jackie and I have always done, uh, we teach our kids to do it, um, is and when someone apologizes, um, one of the things, one of my, I, I've told you before, I have about 4,000 pet peeves. Um, one, and one of them is when someone apologizes and someone says, oh, don't worry about it, forget about it, no big deal. Well, it obviously is a big deal if the person is apologizing. So whether you think it's a big deal or not is irrelevant because they're apologizing, which means they're acknowledging an offense that maybe they were guilty of, and it means something to them. And so we've just always said, if, if someone apologizes, we say, I forgive you. And it's really funny because uh, Killian does it now. Um, and I think it's cute, but it's also, to me, so powerful when I, and someone will say, I'm sorry, and he says, I forgive you. Um, because I think it's a great trait for him to have, to learn like, when, when there's an offense and someone acknowledges it, we forgive it. We release it. And there's a power to that. And when we do communion every, every month, it's one of the things I talk about often is um, when the Bible says that we aren't to take communion in an unworthy manner, one of the big parts of that is that we wouldn't take communion with unforgiveness in our hearts, that we will have released all offenses. We take all the records. I mean, if you want, look around the room. And, if you, and when you catch someone's eye, you think, oh, that person still has a record with me. There's still an offense on their tab. That's unforgiveness. And we are to clean those records. At least one of the reasons why I'm happy we do communion at least once a month is at least monthly we are encouraged as a church family to clear the records. Because if you take communion with unforgiveness in your heart, you are taking communion in an unworthy manner. We are not to share that meal or, or, or the, the Lord's Supper, whatever you, however you refer to that, with unforgiveness in our hearts. Why? Because it leads to sins like this. Because that is the line of supply for first anger, and if we let it go further, it turns into rage. When not dealt with, anger breaks out into angry deeds. That's what rage is. Now we're no longer merely internalizing the hurt but it has begun to dictate our actions. If you've ever been caught up in rage, 
uh, you'll acknowledge that uh, the thing about rage is many times the person who offended you or, or angered you isn't the person suffering from your rage. It's your family, it's the people close to you, because now you're in a rage. And it's not necessarily dictating your behavior toward the person, but it's dictating your behavior in general. You're beginning to treat other people poorly. It's coming out in angry deeds for the people around you. And, and, and it's not even um, pointed necessarily all the time toward any one person. It's just a generalized angry deed behavior around you. Um, now our actions are no longer fueled by the love of Christ, but instead by the hurt that we're still holding on to. That is the fuel of our actions. Now, obviously, uh, you can probably make the uh, pretty clear determination that to live from angry deeds, for that to fuel your actions, is not what Jesus has called us to. We're to operate from the Holy Spirit, and God is love, and so that should be the fuel for all of our behavior and our actions toward anybody is love. Uh, The Bible even says that the world will acknowledge that we are His based on our love for one another. But because we refuse to let go of angry uh, of our anger, because we refuse to let go of when someone hurts us, we can live out of this rage mentality of, um, you know, if you've never heard the saying, "Hurt people, hurt people." When you're hurt and you hold on to it, you will hurt others. You might not know it. You might not. Certainly, you won't intend to do it. Um, but some of us have probably experienced that. We've held on to a hurt. And we begin to harm those around us, whether it's being really short with our spouse or our kids or we come home and we are, we're holding on to this anger from work or from other relationships and we snap at someone in our life and we're like, man, why did I do that? Because we're in the rage mindset. We're being fueled by, our, by the angry things within us. And when we don't deal with it there, now it begins to come out into malicious behavior. Continued unforgiveness turns to behavior which is specifically meant to harm or hurt. So rage is kind of this like we're out of control, we're hurting people without intentionality, but malicious behavior is intentionally seeking to bring harm or hurt toward others. And we might think, well, like, I, I, I didn't hurt them physically, but when we say things, and we're all probably guilty of this, uh, saying things in order to bother or to hurt somebody or to affect them negatively, that's malicious behavior. Now we're not just operating from a well of hurt. We're looking to multiply that hurt to others. Malicious behavior says, well, I'm hurting, so you should too. And so I'm going to say this biting comment. I'm going to say this snarky, nasty thing to you because I hurt and I want you to hurt too. I think we can all acknowledge in a healthy place, that's pretty messed up. That's not a good heart to have to say, well, just because you're hurting doesn't mean everybody else has to hurt. But that's what malicious behavior does. And that's what happens when we refuse to forgive is we start to get to a place where we feel better when the other person is, when other people are hurting and when we're mean to them and they hurt too. There's this weird, sick, pleasure that comes from that because we're no longer operating from a well of love of the love of christ we're operating from a well of hurt and now we're looking to multiply that to other people and then he moves on to the word slander slander goes even a step further and now we're using our words to tear down something that god created slander seeks to demean others and spread the poison in our hearts and minds to their hearts and minds as well. 
It's saying, well, I have this poisonous view of somebody, and I want others to have this hurtful, evil, poisonous view of that person. We can cover it by saying, well, I'm just saying the truth. I'm just saying, I'm just, I'm just speaking the truth. I'm just saying what's real. I'm just being real with you. No, you're slandering. When we talk about someone with the intention of tearing them down, and God created that person, and so that's it's saying, I see this thing that you built, God. I see this thing that you created, and my desire, my wish is to tear this thing down, to lessen it, to demean it, to make it less in someone else's eyes. That's what slander does. It's to say, I'm going to take this person and I'm going to create a negative view in other people's hearts and minds as well because I'm hurt, because I'm operating from a well of hurt. I'm not just seeking to hurt that person. I'm seeking to poison your hearts with my, with my poison as well. At this point, the unforgiveness has become a cancer that our hardened hearts actually want to share with others. I think we could all acknowledge if uh, you were to come down with a diagnosis of cancer and your response is, well, I want other people to have this. How can I share it? That'd be a pretty evil mentality to have. But that's what slander is. It's saying, I have this cancerous problem of anger in my being and I want to share it with people because I don't like that person and I have evil intentions toward them. And so I'm going to use my words to spread this cancer to other people. If we catch ourselves slandering uh, someone, this should be a huge red flag that there is significant unforgiveness in our hearts. And it should be this stopping point for us that says, hold on, I'm speaking evil of this person. There is something desperately wrong with my heart because I'm trying to spread evil to them. And I want you to have that mentality, that word picture of thinking like, I'm trying to spread my cancer to them. And if it was a real, like, physical cancer, all of us acknowledge, man, that is really evil and wicked. And it's no different with the cancer or the poison of our hearts. And then he moves on to dirty language. He says, and as you can imagine, uh, it's pretty difficult to accomplish all of these things above, uh, anger, rage, malicious behavior, and slander, while using God-honoring vocabulary. Uh, It would be pretty difficult to do that. Most of the time, you're going to use some pretty colorful language. Uh, you're going to use demeaning language. You're going to use evil language uh, in order to do that. Many times, the poison in our hearts will overflow even beyond slander to just our everyday language. When we begin to operate not from a well of God's love, but from a well of anger and hurt and rage and malicious behavior, our language will reflect that. And that's, this isn't just talking about, well, this isn't saying Paul, this isn't Paul saying, well, don't curse. It's easy to read it this way, but when you read it in the progression of these sins that Paul's talking about, his, the dirty language that he is talking about, it's language that is not edifying, language that does not build up, that is not edifying to the body of Christ. That's what our words should do. When we talk about others, when we talk to others, our language should build others up. It should edify them and, and breathe life into people. But when we're not operating from the Spirit of God, but from a place of hurt, we will have dirty language. To become comfortable with dirty language means that we begin to delight in the darkness of our hearts and that in others as well. When we begin to 
say these things, and then we hear them agree, like, oh, yeah, that person is a terrible, rotten, no good, dirty scoundrel. And we're like, yeah, you feel that way too. That's a bad place to be. And that's what Paul is saying here. Now is the time to get rid of all of that. And if we think that we are immune to this progression, we're crazy. If you have anger towards somebody, unforgiveness towards somebody, it will get you here. Given time, poison will do its work. Sometimes it takes a while, but it will do what it's meant to do. Cancer will do what it's meant to do if not treated. And so we need to, as Paul is telling them, we need to get rid of it. And the way to do that is forgiveness, is to begin not to just say, oh, I forgive that person. But if there's somebody who's offended you, somebody who's hurt you, begin to pray for them. And not like, you know, Lord, I pray that you would smack them upside the head and, and show them how evil and rotten they are. Uh, not quite the prayer uh, that I would encourage you to pray for them, uh, but to legitimately begin to pray that God would bring them success, that God would bless them, that God would do things in their life that bring them uh, joy. Begin to have that mentality. Also, have a conversation with them. <laughs> Be honest about your hurt. Acknowledge it and release it. Even if that person continues to be rotten to you, forgive. Have the conversation. Acknowledge, hey, when you did this, when you said that, it really hurt me. And I, w- I want to just let you know I forgive you. And whatever their response is, they may respond positively. You might have tears and snot and everything happen. But they also may be like, I don't care. I don't need your forgiveness. Okay, I'm just letting you know I am. And you let it go. And you move on. You do not allow this progression to happen. But man, if, if the body of Christ could learn this, then we could teach it to other people. W- wouldn't that be awesome if the world saw the church as the forerunner in forgiveness and not just in condemning others or in being judgmental? but that when they thought of the church, it's like, man, that's, that, that's a group of people that you can't offend to the point where they don't know how to forgive you. How beautiful is that? That's what we should lead in. And if you're a person who struggles with anger, rage, those kind of things, you're probably a person who struggles with forgiveness. I don't know if this is a newsflash to you, but maybe there's some forgiveness in your hearts. And it might not even be towards somebody or a current situation. It could be something that goes back to your childhood, to, to family things that you need to wrestle with, release, and forgive. And that's a process. And that's what I want us to to finish with this morning is to really ask ourselves, where are these wells in our hearts? Are there roots of bitterness? Are there roots of unforgiveness? Are there lines that I'm constantly still supplying with evil thoughts, with malicious behavior, with rage mentality? Is there unforgiveness, things that I have not released in my heart that I need to cut off? I think to me, as I read chapter 3, one of the biggest points in chapter 3 is this putting to death idea and this lurking mentality. If we looked at our sin that way, if we stopped just trying to manage our behaviors and we looked at every problem, every behavior problem as a symptom of something going on deeper in our hearts, and we began to be intentional about that and to ask the Holy Spirit to help us root those things out. Because if you have significant unforgiveness, by no means are you going to accomplish that forgiveness on your own. You're going to need the Holy Spirit to intercede in that. 
especially if it goes back years and decades, you will need the Holy Spirit's help. Even if it goes back a week, you're going to need His help. And so I encourage you to do that work. Spend some time with the Lord this week. Ask Him where those things are. Trace back those lines and begin to put to death the things of this world. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You that You are teaching us, that You're constantly bringing us along on this journey, that none of us have arrived. There's nobody in this room that doesn't deal with sinful earthly things lurking that their flesh doesn't rise up at times and seek to ambush them. So Lord, I pray that we would be honest with each other, that we would be transparent with one another in community, that we would be honest about our struggles, and we would be able to pray for and, and be there for each other, constantly pointing one another toward you, not trying to fix the problems ourselves or offer our great solutions to their problems. But Lord, would we direct each and every person that comes our way to you. Walk with them, if need be, for a while, for a season. But Lord, would you make it very clear to us. Holy Spirit, illuminate the lines, the roots of supply to the sinful behaviors that we have. Many of us deal with anger, with rage, with malicious behavior. We've all been caught up in slander. And Lord, I pray that we would make commitments to be done with that. Commitments that don't just, aren't just released in words, but that we intentionally go after the things which seek to supply that sin in our life. Lord, journey with us through this, this week, this month, the rest of this year, for the rest of our life, Lord. Would we put to death the sinful earthly things that lurk inside of us? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, have a great week.